Hi, this is Tamson Granger. Dan Abuhoff. Really? Yep. Dan Abuhoff. Mm-hmm. Uh, with Tamson and Dan Read the Paper on Monday, November 6th, 2023. Halloween is done and gone. Yeah. Yeah, it was fun. Yeah, it, was it was good. good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's been a very nice fall. A lot of leaves, a lot of color. Right. Nice enough weather. Taking some nice hikes. Yeah. World Series is over. Well, yes. We'll get back to that later. Yeah, yeah, we'll get back to that. Mm-hmm. Right. World Series is over, but it's a nice time of year, right? Absolutely. So, uh, no complaints. No. No complaints. Chilly enough, sit by the fire, reading the New York Times. Yeah. That's and what good. did you find this week? Well, there's a lot, but I think we ought to start by talking about the marathon. That's sort of, sort of the a big New event. New York marathon. Yeah, the thing about the New York Marathon, you know, years and years ago when they started it, it seemed like a huge deal. Now it seems like it's a big deal for about two hours, and... If then. It's hard to find even coverage on television. It's, uh, yeah, we don't live in New York anymore. Yeah, but we get New York stations. Look, look, what can I tell you? It doesn't seem like a big deal to me, but but if you're... 51,000 people I understand. ran it. Not only 51,000 people ran into it, but many, many more people applied. You know, it's very hard to get into the marathon. So... I think it's still a big deal. Well, it is. I don't know what's wrong with you. No, it's not a it's not a spectator event. I know some people line the course, but what I'm saying is, to, you line the course to cheer people on, right? But uh, there's no. I'm not trying to short anybody who actually participates. It's a major accomplishment for people, and uh, their friends and family get into it. So it's that sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So it's a yeah. more of a private thing. So that's fine. Yeah, we yeah. know. People in it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Somehow every year, some you, you used to have a lot of people from Deloitte. Well, when we were younger, our, 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 yeah, your and, colleagues uh, would do it. But now, you know, that those people are too old. But yeah, my friend Nancy Ferguson's husband did it a few years, I think, and now uh, his daughter does yeah, it. Yeah, he did one or two years. His maybe. daughter, I don't know who has year. two small children, right? Okay, and a job, right? And she's training for a marathon. I mean, I could barely, you know. Tie my shoes when I had two small children. Well, so I don't know. Taking time to uh, train for a marathon is impressive. Hmm. Hmm. And she ran in like four hours and eight minutes. Yeah, that's good. Sarah Banerjee. Yes, it's her not, married name. It's not mind-boggling, but it's good. Yes, I, <laughs> it's mind-boggling to me. You could have done it. Oh my God! Not in a million years. Mm, yeah, I could. No. All right. Yeah. Look, You're, we'll never it's, know. It's very nice of you yeah. to say that. Yeah, so it's it's very sweet. I never was con- carried away by that. You know, we both work out a lot. I've never been carried away by the marathon because I, I never thought it actually was a net positive in terms of uh, physical conditioning. I think it's it's deleterious. It really puts a lot of pressure on a lot of areas, a lot of joints, a lot of muscles, and I think you pay for it later in life. Uh, it's not sustainable. Maybe yes, maybe no. But um, <laughs> but as a one-time I, I think, deal, I think um, I see the appeal. Certain physiognomies are not physiognomies. Very thin people can do it. How's that? I, certain, that, I think. Uh, is that what you're saying? No. Yes, it is. I, I, I think some people are built to do it. I think yeah, it's all, the tall, thin you know, people are, are built to do it. Oh, okay. Uh, right? I no. Well, all right. Short, I, heavy people. More about what are you it. thinking? It probably has something to do with how your joints work. And things like that. But there's okay. less pressure on your joints right. if you're lighter. How's, don't you think? Well. Yes. There's a lot of people who participate. Mm. And it seems to be a wide variety. Mm-hmm. They don't always come in first. But many different kinds of people participate. Okay? Yeah. All right. What else? Do you have anything else? Well, you were talking about I was going to say, first of all, there's a lot of different groups now. I was looking it up online to see when it started. Mm -hmm. And, of course, uh, first is, you know, the elite uh, wheelchair Mm -hmm. participants. You know, Mm -hmm. so so there's a a variety of, of different groups participating now. And one of them starts even before... The official start, right. and that is the unofficial interlopers, the cyclists. Mm-hmm. There's a group of cyclists who have been getting together uh, for a bunch of years. Once all the the streets are closed down, mm-hmm. the bridges are closed down, etc., to facilitate the running of the marathon. Right. Once that's all closed down, but before the run starts, yeah. these cyclists sneak in Mm -hmm. and do the route Mm -hmm. and of course it has to be they you know wait till daylight like 6 30 
and the first events, first participants leave, the first official participants leave at 8.30, mm-hmm. start on their way at 8.30. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and the cyclists who do this, their goal is always to be entirely done, to get to Central Park uh, within those two hours. Which, which you can do. Which is doable. 26 miles. Yeah. Sure. And uh, it wasn't clear. There was an article in the New York Times about it. And, uh, you know, it's a low-key event. The one big rule is whatever someone tells you, you know, to do in terms of officials, police or whatnot, you just agree. You just obey, you know. Mm-hmm. you it, It's a... Um, they're doing it, you know, under the... It's not an official event. They right. have no right to be there. Mm-hmm. So they have to behave themselves or, you know, get out of the way okay. kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And it gets a little bit tricky, a little bit dicey, because there are some things that are being set up, mm-hmm. I suppose, by the volunteers, etc., um, water and, you know, um, stations and so on like that. And uh, sometimes it's hard for them because these cyclists are whizzing by. Mm -hmm. But cyclists do it. Some scooter people do it. Some people rented city bikes and they do it. Um, And uh, so, I mean, uh, that seems like something that would be fun to do, to cycle on closed streets in New York. You know, and uh, one person said, you know, you get to the end, you get to Central Park. 26 miles is not a huge distance, so that, you know, you're thinking, yeah, we could keep going, we could keep going. And so they get as far as 59th Street, and they say, no, you can't. You cannot ride out on the roads, out mm-hmm. on the streets mm-hmm. of New York without the protection of all the sure. um, closures. So, I mean, that's a pain. But, uh, so I thought that was... Uh, yeah, well, similar article. There, it turns out, the Times, and this is kind of a semi-clever idea, although I can't say they invested too much in it, they decided to figure out how long it would take to cover the marathon distance in a car uh, in a normal day when there's traffic. So they set out. When there are no closures. Right. On like a Wednesday afternoon at the beginning of the marathon course. And they meander through the course. And they're not, you know, they're not speeding, but, you know, they're trying to do the best they can. And obviously traffic makes it hard to get any kind of speed at all going. No kidding. In New York no City. No kidding. So, the longest part of my drive sometimes, New York, is after I get through the Lincoln Tunnel. Yeah. And I'm just trying to get across town. Yeah. To get from the west side to the east side. Well, so the runner, the, the, the winning runner, does it in close to two hours, a little bit more. How long do you think it, it took these folks to go by car? Take a wild guess. Uh, three hours. Hmm. No. I uh, have the number here. Average speed is And the answer is, I can give you the precise number, but the answer is uh, five hours. Ah! Five hours. Yeah. Yeah. Five hours. Well, it's, I believe it. I'm telling you that, you know. Five hours. Here's the exact thing. Five hours, 38 minutes. Yeah. No, it's... Is that... Uh, yeah, yeah. New York is not meant for driving. Five hours, 30 minutes to cover 26 miles. That, that's the crazy thing. When you're out on the highway, you know, and Mrs. Google tells you, you know, you have two miles to go or you have one mile to go, and you say, oh, oh my God, I'm just about there. When you're in New York City driving, they say, go a mile and a half. And you're like, wait a minute. I, you know, I've been driving for 15 minutes, and I've only been a quarter of a mile. <laughs> you know, it's a, well, they were it's talking- a whole different frame of reference. They were talking to um, someone who, a uh, healthcare administrator who was jogging by, who has done several marathons under four hours. And they were discussing what they had done. And he said to them, Well, no matter how you do the marathon course, just finishing is an achievement. I guess I he meant it would be. even driving. So, there you go. So, there, um, speaking of marathon or long distance training, the movie we saw this week was Nyad. Nyad, about Diana Nyad, who's the long-distance swimmer. Um, and in particular... Long-distance open water. Opens water swimmer, yeah. Well, you don't really do long-distance swimming too much on 
in pools. I have no idea, but the open water is a huge factor. Yeah, sure. Huge, it's different from just yeah. swimming. You know, it's like the difference between riding your bike through Central Park, riding your bike through New York City, and doing the marathon. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> so anyway, and we're talking about really long distance, like, uh, you know, like the English Channel is nothing. Um she, you know, apparently at a fairly young age or in her 20s and early 30s, sought out real challenges, including the notion of going from Florida to Cuba, or I guess from Cuba to Florida, which is over 100 miles. And trained for that, and uh, there's a lot of logistics that go into that in terms of judging the currents and, you know, protecting from sharks and, and, and other sea animals. Uh, and that attempt, when she was younger, failed. Uh, uh, for a lot of reasons, but it, it, it's too hard. It was too hard to do, and um, she decided. Uh, and as this movie recounts, when she was sixty years old, even though she hadn't swum that kind of uh, challenge for a long, long time, she's going to take this challenge up in her sixties, and that's what the movie's about. Right, and so it, she basically retired mm-hmm. from swimming at about age twenty-eight. Yep. And uh, and then she was a broadcaster. She was a writer, uh, miscellaneous stuff. And then uh, at age sixty, she got back in the water. Yeah. So it's not a documentary. It was a a movie with actors, and the actors were Annette Benning playing uh, Diana Nyad, and you had uh, Jodie Foster playing her friend and coach, and they were the two principal actors in it. Um. And, you know, I have no reason not to think it was reasonably uh, accurate. I mean, their their characterizations. But in any event, uh, the movie just uh, recounts or depicts her various attempts to do it. And she tried several times, uh, failed several times, meeting all kinds of obstacles, including uh, jellyfish. And I don't want to give away the movie, but uh, there's a happy ending. So... Uh, I think we know that she made it eventually. Well, I, I didn't know. I was, it I was, was in the news, okay? I didn't Yeah, I, I no. didn't know that. No. Look, if, I, I, if, I, you're, if you're just uh, going to the movie to see whether she does it... Uh, you're in the wrong movie. Yeah. So, uh, what do you think of the movie? Boring as hell. Really? Uh, yeah. I, I, I liked it more than you did. You liked it more than I did. Even though it was uh, your idea to watch you, it. I, I think you liked the you know, you're into killing yourself training. Really? So you like to... That's you know, what I am. So I was identifying. Yeah, I was yeah, identifying yeah. with Diana. All right. Well, she was depicted as really kind of a strange personality. Uh, and you would, it would take a strange personality to do that kind of challenge, right? And to follow through on it. She was, you know, totally driven. Uh, wouldn't take no for an answer. Drove everybody around her batty. Um, because she had this laser focus and she was going to get it done. And nothing was going to stop her. Many times in the face of, you know... All logic, uh, and as again failed failed many times, uh, made many bad decisions. But she knew one way it was her way or the highway, and she was going to go until she absolutely had to be pulled from the water. And several times she did have to be pulled from the water. But ultimately, as I said, happy ending. So she's a strange personality. Um, the way the movie uh, shows it is that um, people overcome whatever difficulties they have in dealing with her, and ultimately embrace her. But um, I'm there sure there was a challenge. There's people in a similar situation who, who things don't end well for. Well, like I... That. You know, the, her mantra was, I'm doing this to show people over 60, you know, not to give up. You can yeah. do anything you right. really try to do, which is not... Um, which is totally self-serving. Look, look yeah, everything, yeah. she made all kinds of things. She's doing, well, you know, hear this from athletes all the time. I'm, I'm doing this to show the people this. I'm doing this to show the country that. I know everyone's watched me. Look, 90 times, at 900, no one gives, gives a, uh, a balloon uh, about what you're doing. You don't care. And she's not doing it for anybody but herself. But that's fine. Uh, and I, I think the movie actually sees through that. The, the movie doesn't yeah, does, yeah. Does, doesn't have uh, you know an idealized view of her. I mean, she's totally self centered. She's a megalomaniac, uh, and uh, it's it, it is an authorized biography. And I had blessed the movie, but I guess she you know understands that's the way she is, and is, which is you know. Oh, some I think it was a fairly probably a fairly benign portrait of. Yeah, I don't know what she's like. Her in that sense, she might be worse. But I, mean, it, I think it, I think she had to be. Incredibly focused and tough. Yeah. To get this done, 
to raise the money to badger people into supporting her, helping her, guiding her, But at the same time, totally totally self-absorbed. Yeah. Totally self-absorbed. But, you know, uh, many... Lots of times to do something great. Yeah, you got to be that. That's way. what you've got to do. Sure. So I don't um, malign that. I don't. Uh, I don't say uh, that's not what makes me not like the movie. I just didn't think it was just to me sort of repetitive. It was just like uh, okay, it's the same story. Now we're gonna fail again. Then we're gonna rise up from the ashes. Try it again. But we, you know. Well, I, I didn't know that she ultimately succeeded when I was watching it. So it's more in suspense. But I thought it would have been a better movie, but it wouldn't have been reality, if she didn't succeed, honestly. Because there's a more interesting story. I mean, how are you dealing with setbacks? How are you dealing with a challenge you just can't make it? How do you come to grips with that? Yeah. How do you come to terms with that? That and, and, and she did at certain points have to do that. And that, to me, is a more interesting movie than the Disney movie of, like, all you got to do is close your eyes and put your head down, you know, and uh, there you go. Um, so I didn't like the ending. Yeah. But um, but is it, but what an tough what an impossible thing to do. Well, she swam I mean, for over a hundred hours, right? Uh, you know, maybe no, I don't think it was a hundred hours. Maybe it was eighty no, hours. Over a hundred. Uh, over hundred uh, no, miles. No, it's like forty-eight hours okay. or something. She, first of all, there were you know, um, of course, my source is Wikipedia, right? <laughs> but uh, it does say there was you know there was some question that uh, she seemed to go very fast at the end, or it was. The total time was quicker than one would expect, um, so there was, you know, there was a question, you know, did she get any kind of aid? Did yeah. she get on the boat? Yeah, there is a controversy, but uh, th- but they don't show that in the movie. Talk about right? uh, what you know about her mental state yeah. while she's doing that. That, that uh, just to have the mental toughness right. to swim for that amount of time to you know kind of address all those obstacles and keep going and uh, survive it uh, takes also a certain frame of mind uh, that uh, seems pretty yeah we're talking about you know the marathon people running it in two three hours maybe four hours she's swimming for 48 hours yeah it's insane yeah yeah, I don't know how it works. And the the one thing about the movie is, though, that during the movie, it appears, all you see is the one boat mm-hmm. and the kayaks who are protecting her from sharks right. and stuff. But uh, again and again, and and in the credits for the movie, they said that there were she was accompanied by 40 people. Mm. So it was a pretty big operation. In many mm. I, I can't, I still don't understand exactly how it worked. But I will say the most horrible part of it was she was getting attacked by some killer jellyfish. Yeah. And uh, that was really awful. But I have to say that uh, Sarah Banerjee's kids went as marine characters <laughs> for Halloween, marine uh, animals. And her daughter was a jellyfish, and it was a spectacular costume. It was uh, this is unrelated. Like an uh-huh. umbrella with well, all these tentacles. Well, you see, there's okay, the, another, we just got a little jellyfish theme going on here. Another so connection. I, I'm yeah. thinking I'm putting that in my back pocket for future Halloween ideas. Yeah, but you can't in see case any of my grandchildren. You couldn't come see the child's face me. though. You couldn't see the child's face. It was covered with jellyfish. Yeah, but in a mask, you're not. You know. Okay. It, but she's just holding an umbrella. So she can see, you know, where she's walking kind of stuff. So it's not dangerous and not scary. Mm-hmm. You know how kids hate to put on masks anyway. So um, jellyfish costume. All right. Put that down. Next year. Next year for Hazi. So in any event. But anyway, I mean, the, you would recommend for people. to it, You can see it on Netflix. So it's not. A yeah, we deal. saw it on Netflix. And um, you recommend it. Yeah. You know, it wasn't bad. All right. So, um just finishing that theme about uh, events that really put you to the test, there was an article about what's called a headwind cycling race that they hold uh, in the Netherlands every year. Uh, They've been holding it for a few years. This is like the I don't know, eighth year or something Exactly like right. That. right. It was originated by uh, a company to bring uh, kind of... Uh, 
attention to wind. Yeah, actually. because I, I, and, it's a windmill company. Yeah. 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 So uh, wind power. Yeah. Right. So it's, uh, and you know, that's the funny thing I was thinking about. We went on a bike tour in uh, in, the in the Netherlands. Right. And it was flat. And we were anticipating that it would be, you know, easy peasy. Right. And they said, no, you know, other places have hills. We have the wind. And, and they're right. <laughs> and it, it's right. <clears throat> wind can be yeah. a significant opponent. Well, they only, they say thousands of people. It's a little like the New York City Marathon. Thousands of people try to get spots. There are only 300 spots. And they, they say they have participants with different fitness levels from professional athletes to former cycling professionals to what they describe as postmen with strong calves. But let's face it. Yeah. Everybody in the Netherlands rides a bike. Yeah. They've all been riding since they were peanuts. So it's, you know. Well, they use, it's fun, funny. So they, they use bicycles without gears and which have uh, what I'll call back brakes. In other words, if you pedal backwards, yeah. the, the, yeah. that's the brake. And so they're kind of, they're not quite cruisers, but they're a long way from what you would call uh, racers. And uh, it's very hard. They say that they, the organizers provide vomit buckets. You know, it's like serious business. Anyway, the reason this made the well, newspapers... They did that a couple of years ago when there was a bad storm. Yeah, uh, right. Uh, this made the newspapers because, again, it's the headwind cycling event. And it was canceled this year because of the headwinds. Because it was not only was it normally windy, it was extremely windy. windy. Well, there was this terrible storm that right. went through uh, Europe. <laughs> I was reading today that... Uh, People died in Tuscany from the floods. Is that right? I mean, yeah. So all over it was a tremendous, yeah, um, powerful storm. But I'm sure they'll have the event. It wasn't safe to be out. The, the The town officials said we don't want people out on the road. We have not in a bicycle, not any any way. Next year, Tamsin. Next year. No, not in a million years. Headwind cycling event. Well, you know, I think everything's a headwind. <laughs> you know, so uh, the funny thing is, you, you you often ride bicycles. At least I do, and you feel a headwind. You turn around, you don't feel anything. What's that about? Yeah, but what, no, yeah, I get that totally. Yeah. But you don't you don't feel the tail tailwind. Yeah. You sort of do, because you're you're you're, you're going along. You say, "Wow, this is pretty easy." Wow, I'm really getting strong. And, uh, so if you start out like that, yeah. and then you turn around, and suddenly you're going nowhere, you say, "Ooh, I had the wind behind me." Before. My experience is the wind just dies down when you turn around, and you don't get anything out of it. That's the way the wet life is. You can't count on the tailwind. All right. So you have what do we have here? Oh yes, uh, audio books. Right. Yeah. So, I don't know why this appealed to you, because you don't listen to books. No, I don't. Um, but uh, you clipped an article about uh, celebrity readers. Yeah. Because uh, I guess this this must have been planted by uh, the Britney Spears uh, PR yeah. machine, because uh, the first uh, third of the article is really about Britney Spears is not reading um, her memoir mm-hmm. uh, for the audiobook. Mm-hmm. Uh her memoir, The Woman in Me, Michelle Williams has got the job. Right. Because it was too emotional, you know. And, yeah, I don't, uh, I, yeah, I'm not, uh, I don't demand at all that authors read their right. books. You know, because some authors are terrible readers. Mm-hmm. And uh, one one book, I forget what it was, but it was just so boring. It was, uh, you know, the author was reading and it was total monotone mm-hmm. as if, uh, you know, um, I can understand that in some ways that it's up to your own imagination to bring it alive, but to listen to it was awful. Well, you're talking about a different thing because if, if one thing for an author to read their own fiction, it's another thing. The question whether the author should be reading her own autobiography, and there you might expect the author to read it, uh, and that's not what you're not a good reader. Well. Apparently, not. I mean, you know. So anyway, so Michelle Williams is doing it, and then the rest of the article is just about you know a lot of uh, there's a fair amount of uh, well-known celebrity performers who were you know looking for jobs. Yeah, uh, I mean the know, article. It, it's kind of easy to do. You don't. It, it's a, an intimate thing. There's not that big a, a crowd there. You right. don't have to wear makeup. Right. No you, makeup. And uh, you know it's uh, very relaxed. Now I. You know, I um, I just read um, a book that was narrated by Meryl Streep, and it was actually, I thought she was very good. Mm-hmm. Okay? 
And uh, they say here, Reese Witherspoon, William Defoe, a lot of people are doing it. And, um, you know, it's more of a performance than right. a reading. Right. So that's kind of interesting. And uh, lots of times that's what you enjoy about the audiobook is that it's somewhere between reading and um, imagining everything. Mm. Everything comes alive in your brain, mm. okay? And having uh, somebody kind of set the stage, but you're still visualizing all this, even though somebody's voice is well, making the do you remember the book alive. that Meryl Streep had read? Uh, yeah. Um, no, I've forgotten what the book <laughs> we'll was. Come to you later. <laughs> we'll come to you later. That's fine. Right. But, uh, uh, yeah, so, all right. Looks but it. anyway, but anyway, so, I mean, but they're different. Uh, I was struck by the fact that there's so many off, so many actors reach out to these agencies and say, you well, know, I'm interested. Yeah, I guess they must you know, be. It's not like com- they hunt down Meryl Streep. Compared to being on a set yeah. for a movie or even TV or whatever, yeah. whatever, it's a much easier job. But the the thing is, there are great, great narrators mm-hmm. uh, that you, you know, that are not celebrities. Mm-hmm. You know, and this is their thing. Yeah. And uh, I suspect that there are many great narrators that um, are... Uh, um, better than a lot of actors. Uh, oh, yeah, sure, and, that's what uh, they do. And, and there are different approaches. Like some of the actors and some of the narrators really get into the characters. They kind of research the character mm-hmm. and uh, they craft a performance. I have to say that, you know, one of my favorite series to listen to mm-hmm. when I'm driving was Louise Penny's um, Inspector Gamache, mm-hmm. right, mm-hmm. series. Right. And you've heard that a little bit. Yeah. And uh, she has had two narrators in the series because her original narrator, um, Ralph Cosham, uh, passed away. Right. And he was spectacular. And you know what he did? He did he read it cold. Really? He read it completely cold. Yeah. To the extent where uh, one time he was reading a character and he found out uh, he's having the character talk and then a few paragraphs later he reads that the character's Scottish. <laughs> oh my so god. He wasn't giving <clears throat> wasn't giving them the right accent, okay? Yeah. But in general, he said he wanted to be there, like with the reader, like, mm-hmm. as if he was reading it. You know, mm-hmm. yeah, um, you're discovering it together. Yeah. So that I thought was an interesting approach. Um, and uh, you know, I used to have a long commute uh, in the car, like an hour drive to work, mm-hmm. and so I've listened uh, to uh, many different uh, books, and uh, you know, I find it really entertaining. I love to read. There's no doubt about that. Okay. It doesn't make me read less. But uh, listening to books is also a lot of fun. It's somewhere between, you know, theater, uh, etc. And um, actual reading. Well, let me ask you this first of all. Was the Meryl Streep book you listened to Tom Lake? Yes. Okay. The Ann Patchett book? Yes. Okay. All right. Just want to to get that down. Good. Yes, well, thank you for no problem. bringing that up since I only listened to it a month ago and you're kind of underscoring the idea. No, 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 no. I had asked you a question that you didn't have in mind, so now you have the answer. Uh-huh, uh-huh. But she did well. I was surprised. Yeah. I was surprised. Um, and that's a very popular book. Because yeah. I, in general, don't, uh, you know, I kind of shy away from the celebrity readings. Okay. You know, there's a whole there's a whole series of classics that they have celebrities reading and uh, some oh, there was one that it was just uh, there was one I was reading and I couldn't stand the way the actor pronounced anything. Mm-hmm. And I wasn't, you know, I said, "Yeah, let me just go back to okay. good narrators, not celebrities." A little mm-hmm. bit. My fear, my guess is you're not going to be listening to the Britney Spears book anyway, so not an issue for you. But um, I am read, I am listening to a kind of a somewhat silly book. Yeah, I'm listening. It's not really silly, but uh, I'm listening to Emily Wilde's Encyclopedia of Fairies. Yeah, I think that's okay. silly. Yeah, so it's in the fantasy genre, and uh, I haven't, I haven't read or listened to too many fantasy books, okay? 
But this one obviously is fantasy. It's actually not bad. It's it's actually been kind of fun. And I'm okay with fairies, really. And uh, and so, you know, and in fact, you know, and this is a book uh, by a British author, um, Heather Fawcett. I'm saying that, but I don't really know. Well, I think she's British. And uh, anyway, um, so reading through the New York Times, uh, either this morning or yesterday morning, I was struck by an article about fairies building a bridge mm-hmm. in, uh, in England, in Norfolk. Okay. And um, the, so there's a story where um, along the coast, mm-hmm. in the salt marsh areas, um, uh, areas that are owned or controlled or whatever by um, the uh, National uh, Trust, mm-hmm. they call it. Um, there's one area they, you know, they're trying hard to protect these coastal areas from erosion and destruction. And there's one where there was a bridge that uh, went across some streams, etc., mm-hmm. um, to allow people to mm-hmm. walk out more towards the coastline. And uh, d- depending on the tides coming in or out, uh, if you didn't have that bridge, you wouldn't necessarily be able to get back mm-hmm. in. And uh, one bridge was deemed uh, unsuitable by the National Trust, and they took it down. Mm. And the town was up in arms. Mm-hmm. Okay, the nature lovers in town, whatever, uh, was up in arms. And magically, over one night, a new bridge appeared. Mm-hmm. And nobody knows who built it. Mm-hmm. And uh, etc. And nobody, and if they do, they're not telling. So the National Trust said, this is unsafe. And they took it down. Mm-hmm. And then another one appeared overnight. <laughs> Okay, and so uh, so the National Trust people are saying we don't know what all the fuss is about. We will replace this bridge <clears throat> when we can, the soonest we could possibly do it would be fall of next year. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's just we have everybody's safety and the protection of the coastline in mind when we're doing this, etc. and so forth. So we'll see what happens. And then I was looking at the comments online. You know, with the, all these articles, yeah. the comments are often the best part of the article. Mm-hmm. And somebody wrote in and said, yeah. I don't know if you realize it, but most, a lot of things in England were built by the fairies. Really? Hmm. All right. But what I was going to say, what I was stumbling about in the beginning is I am reading a detective series that, uh, sort of a detective series, um, that takes place in Norfolk, this mm. same area, mm. um, by an author named Ellie Griffiths. Mm. And it's the Ruth Galloway series. Mm-hmm. And I love Ruth, okay, because she's an archaeologist mm. and she's a lecturer at uh, university. And she's kind of no nonsense and uh, she's a bit overweight, but uh, she's uh, full of all this confidence. And she's, by hook or by crook, having a very interesting life. Um, and and she's, just, she, she's just a very kind of real but intelligent, interesting person. And mm-hmm. her specialty is bones. So whenever, you know, there's a local murder and they're trying to look at the bones and figure something out or they have to dig up and find some bones, Ruth is on the job. Okay. Good. Good. Um, all right, where are we here? Um, mm, World Series, briefly. Um, so Texas won the World Series, good for them. Um, that's fine. Arizona, who played in the World Series, represented the National League, was pretty interesting because they weren't that good. They weren't that good during the year. Uh, they got together during the playoffs. They were the last team to make the playoffs. Uh, which means they had the, the worst record in the playoffs. But to me, the most interesting story was that of this fellow, Merrill Kelly. Uh, Merrill Kelly is the pitcher for um, what I'll call their number two starter for Arizona. 
and he pitched extremely well. He pitched extremely well against the Phillies, and he's the main reason why Arizona advanced. And in in the one game that uh, that uh, T- Texas lost to Arizona was because Merrill Kelly dominated Texas. He pitched an unbelievable game. I had never heard of Merrill Kelly. Maybe I'd heard of him once. Maybe he pitched against the Mets this year, but he's not a household name by any means. And his his uh, route to the major leagues, and what I'll call stardom, if we can call it that, is just worth noting in that he could not make a major league team. And uh, the story in the Times talks about it uh, in 2016. Now, Kelly is 35 now, 2016. He's 28 years old. And he was in the Korean League. Couldn't make it in the U.S. Hmm. He had spent two years in the Korean League, and he was 28. Mm-hmm. And 28 is really you're hitting on the wrong side of things, age-wise. Right. And he's telling he's having a meal with his agent, with his wife, also, his own wife, and his brother. And he's saying to them, look, I've had it. I'm not enjoying being in Korea. I'm away from my family. I don't like it. I'm coming back to the States, even if it means signing a minor league deal. Then he said, excuse me, I have to use the men's room. He goes to use the men's room. The agent talks to the brother and the wife and says, you got to talk him out of this. I'm telling you, sign to minor league deal. Won't make any money. We'll never get to the majors. He needs more time. He's not ready yet. He needs to spend more time in Korea, even though he doesn't want to do it. He comes back out over the next days. They talk him into it. He signs up. He ends up spending two more years in Korea. All right? He's 30 years old. He hasn't made the major leagues. But following the two years in Korea, uh, he gets a contract. And he gets a contract with Arizona in which they actually guarantee him $5 million. So now he's going to make money for the first time. And at the age of 30, there he is. Well, he succeeds. And now he's uh, 34 years old or so, 35. And he's a huge success. It took him that long to mature as a pitcher to get his craft down. But he has, over the last four years, done well. He's not the number one pitcher in the league, but he is, I would say, uh, one of the top ten starters in the league. But what is the difference between playing in Korea and playing in Well, it's a different league. league. Oh, what's the difference? Because Why he, would he get better training there? Uh, they don't tell you. I can just speculate. But, I mean, it's a different. It's a certain level of competition. He could stand out more. He could work on things differently. I don't know. Mm-hmm. I don't know. But also, somehow the contract that he would have signed, the only contract he was being offered when they had that dinner in Korea was not a good contract. You know, Arizona, nobody was offering him a major league contract. Mm-hmm. And there was, he was saying, Jason was saying, look, no one's offering you a major league contract, which means no one's committed to bringing you to the major leagues. You don't know if you're ever going to get there. But if you just establish your bona fides by spending more time here, people will bid for your services. And that's what happened. So anyway, tremendous success story. He was great. He was great during the playoffs. So I was very impressed. So, you know, we have uh, new neighbors. One mm. of, and uh, one of them is from Australia. Mm. So now we notice all Australian yeah. articles. Okay. Yes. Neighbors from Australia. And so this week I noticed an article about uh, mushroom poisoning mm-hmm. in Australia, yes. which is interesting because our neighbor's dog actually got mushroom poisoning. So mm-hmm. I don't know if this is an Australian thing or what. Yeah. But anyway, so a, a woman was uh, just arrested. She had had uh, her um, estranged husband's parents mm-hmm. over for dinner. Mm-hmm. And uh, the parents and the parents, the mother-in-law's sister and her husband, mm-hmm. okay, kind of a a peacemaking thing. Mm-hmm. The kind of uh, the you know the couple was going through a tough time. They wanted, and the wife says she wanted you know the grandparents to come over mm-hmm. so that uh, you know to make peace right. for the best you know the benefit of the children and so on and so forth. And uh, she made beef Wellington, mm-hmm. which has mushrooms in it, mm-hmm. supposedly two kinds of mushrooms, uh, fresh mushrooms and dried mushrooms. And she says she got them at such and such a place and such and such a place. And, um, you know, by the, I guess, next day, 
everybody ends up in the hospital. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, the parents both die. Oh, God. The sister dies. Only the brother-in-law survives. Hmm. And um, they can't, uh, you know, they, you know, they, so anyway, they're, they're, um, they've arrested her. Yeah. They say also her husband had mushroom poisoning three times. Oh my God. So they, well, you see, they, uh, you know, don't you remember arrested that? her on three counts of oh, attempted murder and. Hmm. Don't you remember that movie Phantom Thread? Yeah, 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 yeah. So that took place, I guess, in England, not in not in Australia. But uh, yeah, right. Mushroom poison. So anyway, it, it's a pretty <clears throat> weird story. I mean, she, yeah. you know, the people who sell the mushrooms say they had no other, you know, complaints, etc. Yeah. And she says she gave the same, you know, food to her children, but she scraped off the mushrooms because they don't like mushrooms mm. for good reason. So. Yeah. All right, so let me just pick up the pace here. I'm getting well into it. Not that it's not fascinating, but Bobby Knight passed away. Mm. I'm not going to dwell on this, but you, I'm sure you realize that Bobby Knight was, was, an a nut. was an unbelievably successful basketball coach. He seemed like a nut. Mm. Yeah, he did seem like a nut. He, he kind of was a nut, right? But just so I, I don't want you to lose the thread of this. In other words, his teams uh, averaged uh, over uh, the course of almost 30 years, they averaged 23 wins a season, won 11 Big Ten titles, two national championships. It's unbelievably right. successful right. basketball coach. And he was a nut, yeah. He, he almost had a split personality, according to what you read. Mm -hmm. It's like there are many people who say, he was a great guy. He's the kindest person in the world. Um, and others who say he's abusive, he was whatever. I mean, they have a quote here from the guy who wrote his biography. Well, wrote, wrote, a, wrote a story about the season on the brink, the season for the Indiana basketball team, where it was a coach, John Feinstein, a famous sports writer, said, look, if I had a dollar for every time someone told me a story about encountering Knight and finding him gracious and charming, I never would have to work another day in my life. If I had a dollar for every time I've been told a story about Knight being a bully or being rude, I'd be Bill Gates. In other words, I'd have that much more money. So he's he's kind of a bizarre thing. But watching him coach, I will say, the reason I thought he was a nut like you do, like everyone did, was he would definitely lose control. And it's one thing to scream at players. I don't, I don't advocate this. But it's still one thing to scream at players because you think it's going to help them. You might be wrong, but at least you have that in mind. It's another thing to act that way because you've lost control of yourself mm -hmm. and you're acting out of your own demons. And that was clearly what was going on with Bobby Knight. So um, it's bizarre. What's interesting, too, is he's always compared with Mike Krzyzewski. Mike Krzyzewski actually played for Bobby Knight on West, at West Point where Bobby Knight was the coach there. And um, I always, you know, like, Bob, like Mike Krzyzewski's, he actually has more wins now than Bobby Knight. And, you know, he's, he's actually... Uh, a good guy as opposed to Bobby Knight. But, you know, I'm not in that camp because I've seen many times Bobby Mike Krzyzewski go crazy at referees and even at players. And um, same kind of thing. I mean, I, he, he didn't throw a chair across the court like Bobby Knight did. But uh, Krzyzewski's no angel. Um, okay. So I don't know what's going on with that. But in any event, he's a very strange guy. Split personality almost. I'm sure if one of us was a psychiatrist, he would have more to say, but great basketball coach. So there you go. All right. So um, let's see. What we, oh, we're we going to talk. Well, there's this article I don't know what to make of, right? About Buffy St. Marie. Mm -hmm. um, he, oh, he's a folk singer. And um, we're only going to talk about it because you said something which is interesting about it. So. We grew up listening to Buffy St. Marie as a folk singer who sang about indigenous people. She's Canadian. And, uh, you know, there was a particular reservation in Canada that she hailed from. And, you know, she was considered the real thing and authentic. She had a real voice and she was quite well known. Well, now she's in her early 80s and she's still apparently a major figure in Canada, more so than in the United States. But apparently the uh, CBC, the Canadian Broadcasting Company, is now reporting that they have found her birth certificate 
and uh, she's not indigenous. And that notwithstanding all these years of her, you know, having that persona, she in fact uh, was born in Stoneham, Massachusetts to a couple who were uh, Italian and Irish or something, and her name at birth was Beverly uh, Jean Santa Maria. So um, it's a controversy, and uh, bigger there than here. So Buffy St. Marie's response was, quote, that her, quote, growing up mom told her that she was adopted and was Native. And that's what she was always told. And and, and I said, and then there are other responses. Wait, wait, was she adopted? Uh <clears throat> Uh, yeah, she, she she says she was adopted, but that's disputed too. Okay, yeah, yeah, I don't know. All I yeah, I didn't even know any of the facts of the thing, but uh, I just uh, all I was saying was there are many family stories. Mm-hmm. Okay, that people grow up telling, and we see this all the time on something like Antiques Roadshow. People mm-hmm. get up and they say, "This is my great grandfather's. This he used it for that. He yeah. wore it to you know," and then they say. And and they, he bought it here, and then they say, well, you know, the expert says that's all impossible right. because of this, 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 and this, and this. But, you know, for years, your mm. family has believed it. And I know that, uh, you know, people in my family have uh, done genealogical research and uh, written things down. And there's a story of the first Granger mm-hmm. who came to America, okay, and his name was Lancelot Granger, right. okay, which doesn't even seem possible. Right. But, you know, people traced it back. And the story that goes with him just sounds crazy. It just <laughs> sounds like, you know, there are highway highwaymen, there are murders, there was, you know, um, trying to get back somebody's inheritance, mm-hmm. uh, so on and so forth. Um, and it would not surprise me at all mm. that, you know, it, that hundreds of years ago, somebody was telling the grandchildren the story, right. and they were, you know, um, elaborating, yeah. uh, embellishing, yeah. shall we say, remembering um, fantastical tales they had read somewhere or, or whatever, and that it just got carried down. So, you know, I'm a little bit sympathetic, uh, you know, in this day and age, we have DNA testing and hmm. so on. You can find out an enormous amount about a person. And uh, in fact, my buddy, the archaeologist, Ruth Galloway, um, is always saying, yeah, you can send away the teeth and know exactly where somebody grew up because whatever they were eating, it's still in there kind Mm. of thing. Mm. Um, So there's all kinds of information we can get now that we've never been able to get. But, you know, um, you know, it's... uh, so it's tricky when you kind of fold in the family lore, if that's the case. I mean, maybe this was all fabricated from the get-go. <clears throat> well, look, but you also remember the Canadian babies that were separated all right, at birth, so that, that were switched So they at bring birth. this in. So she says, you know, she claims she was adopted. And they say, well, there is no record of you being adopted. And then uh, her responses or her her group's responses that many adoption records had been destroyed by the Canadian governments. Uh, and that children adopted in Massachusetts were commonly issued new birth certificates. Uh, uh, you're never going to figure it out. They do one of the things that tip the CBC off, and again, this is a bigger deal in Canada than here. Is apparently there's an article in 1964 newspaper in which an uncle of Buffy St. Marie, this is 1964, came forward and said she's not indigenous. Oh, okay. And uh, this is all quote part of the professional buildup. So who knows? I think I do know, but it doesn't make any yeah, difference. Yeah, it doesn't make any difference. Yeah. Uh, all right. So finally, it's complicated. It's yeah, complicated. complicated, but it's not that. But complicated. it's uh, what? It's one thing to embellish. It's another thing to take advantage. Yeah. Of but you know, culture again. And to, 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 to her credit, she has embraced that culture, and she's been made an honorary member of the tribe and all that stuff. So well, it's all good. Uh, a lot well, of money pretending. I say it's all good because okay. in Canada, we don't know. All right, it's go not on, all go good. On with finally. Like I'm reading an article, you know, they have every week in the time, in the journal, um, they have an author who's You're reading written, an article that, that uh, is okay. subtitled, Five Best Biographies of Economists. That's right. So, somehow I didn't read that article. You didn't read that? No. 
I'll lend it to you. You can have it. So a woman named Jennifer Burns wrote a, wrote a biography of Milton Friedman, and she's writing about other biographies of economists that she admires. And I, I'm familiar with all these economists, as you are, I'm sure. But except for one, a woman named Charlotte Perkins Gilman, subject of a biography by Cynthia Davis in 2010, uh, a woman economist. There aren't that many women economists that are that well-known. Uh, so I'm reading about this. Charlotte Perkins Gilman in the 1890s became famous in 1890. Yeah, 1890s. She wrote something called The Yellow Wallpaper, a chilling short story about a woman undergoing a mental breakdown, which I think she had, actually. And um, she's famous for that, they say, but she's not as famous for her book in 1898 called Women and Economics. Her look at women's roles in society through an economic lens. Her central argument, according to Davis, was, quote, that women had lagged behind men because they had, for natural and beneficial reasons, during a primitive stage, allowed their mates to, to support them while they tended to children. This arrangement is soon and unnaturally evolved into simultaneous service to the adult male and to the home. The process would only reverse itself once these economically dependent women learned to stand on their own two feet. End of quote. And she was an advocate of women having careers of their own. This is in 1898. Right. And uh, she um, quite wrote a lot of articles in her own literary magazine. Uh, and it's, I'm trying to figure out why she's not more well-known. Uh, when I read about her a little bit, I think it's because um, it turns out she was racist. And she was a believer in eugenics. Um, so uh, that may have caused people not to really celebrate her and, and not to really follow up on her. But it, it's kind of striking what she wrote about economics. And even I'll end on this quote from uh, F.A. Hayek, who's one of the great economists. And, uh, and the, the writer here says um, th th that this woman's life exemplifies F.A. Hayek's dictum, quote, nobody can be a great economist who is only an economist, which I think is true. In other words, to be an economist, to be a great economist, you have to understand people who participate in the economy, and you have to understand people, and you have to have a more wide-ranging set of interests than the quantitative analyses that are the bedrock of economics. You're nodding. You agree well, with said. that? No, there said. you go. Okay, that's it. That's it. That's enough. Enough. High-level intellectual discourse, and uh, we'll now leave you to your own devices. Until next week. Back, back to the fairies. Back to, uh, for you. Uh, this is uh, Dan Abuhoff. And Tamsin Granger. Uh, we'll see you next week. Right.